This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. All right, welcome. Yes, we are here. Episode, what is this, 59 of In Class with Car, the largest Africana studies classroom in the world. Let me say first, thank you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from all over the globe. Uh, and we thank you all for, for sitting in this space with us right now, because let's be clear, we are made for a time such as this. Uh, and let me say thank you to my brother. Um, I wanted to, yesterday, you know, we both teach. And I have a class, you know, writing class, and one of my students is doing a blog. She's uh, a, she identifies herself as a, as a white woman. Um, and she was raised in a town in New York that was founded to, uh, to be all white. And so she was raised in this town, and there are many, many towns like it. After World War II, this government set up different spaces, gave, you know, grants and, and uh, you know, other funding for people to set up their towns. And um, she said she didn't know until she went to college. She took an African-American, uh, African-American studies course, and she knew the name because it's the name of her town. And she was like, oh, what else don't I know? They never taught me this in school. Yeah. So she, she's doing a blog where she's inviting other white folk to come and talk about what they don't know. And she's angry. Her She's angry at her parents. She's angry at her school. She's angry at mm. for not educating her. And I'm, I'm encouraged because I feel like there may be a whole lot of other people out there who are also like disillusioned by what we have been taught or not taught. Mm. And then I wake up uh, yesterday to uh, this caucus that, uh, is founded in what is it? What do they call? Not Aryan principles, but uh, what Anglo-Saxon? Like, what is that? So I wanted to talk about that because you also uh, made me finish watching, or I'm all caught up on the Falcon, and I call it the White Soldier, but it's the Winter Soldier, <laughs> Disney Plus, and Carl Lumbly, the great Carl Lumbly. Mm -hmm. It's uh, an amazing for the people in the back of the universe. <laughs> the great Carl Lumbly. Craig Carl Lumbly asked a question of hmm. Anthony Mackey Falcon character. Well, he didn't ask a question. He said, America will never allow for a, a black Captain America and any black man that would accept it, uh, I question him or something to that effect. Like, you know, I, I question the judgment, or I question the, the spirit and I, I wanted to write it down, but the essence of it is oh, any black is man that would accept, did you, did you write it down or did you remember it? Cause I know you they would never let a black man be Captain America. And even if they did, no self-respecting black man would ever want to be. <laughs> That's what Carl Lumley told Anthony Mackie sitting on that couch <laughs> in New York City. Oh. I know that, you know, you're a comic book uh, yeah. aficionado. I am not, but I watch a lot of television and I love these uh, Marvel and Star Trek and Star Wars. And I, I love all of it. I watch mm -hmm. all of it. And for and, everybody who is on narrative, tell them, is there a place for them on narrative? Folks yes, like us? yes, we are. We are building out. And, and again, narrative is being shaped by the people who are in it. So mm -hmm. yeah, I want to thank everybody who is in narrative, narrative with a K, like knowledge, yes. narrative.com. We have a whole farming community. I just started a series, which is available now uh, with a beekeeper because bees are foundational. So we have a beekeeper. Shout out to Kamal. Uh, Kamal Be uh, oh, Bell. Is it Kamal? Oh, why am I forgetting his name? Yes. Uh, Kamal Blue. 
His name is Kamal and he's in North Carolina and he's one of the co-founders of Sankofa Farms and uh, just an amazing, uh, he and his family own this farm, they own that land and they're giving us a 101 in beekeeping. And um, I'm looking forward to this. We also will be starting a hieroglyphic uh, lesson with uh, your brother, Dr. Mario Beatty. Um, the language in the world. He just did a paper last weekend on Akhenaten that he's gonna, uh, he's the first African-American to present at the International Conference of Egyptologists, which was held in Rhodes, Greece, a number of years ago, and he's going to be uh, uh, he's going to be presenting at the American Council on uh, for Research on Egypt, which is like one another the huge global uh, pieces on Akhenaten. He's getting ready to blow their minds on Akhenaten. He has reread the glyphs and all the architecture, and is getting ready to go in there. Is this your table? Let me just go ahead and toss it. And he's going to dare anybody to challenge his research. So that's who y'all going to be learning from. You take glyphs. So, the absolute so next month, we got a genealogy uh, person that's coming in. Mm -hmm. uh, this, again, brick by brick, this pyramid is being uh, erected. And the importance of it is that the lack of knowledge, you know, we talked last week a little bit about exterminate all the brutes. I'm now finished with it. And, you know, I'm like, I, you know, I'm, I'm learning. And then, you know, we had a brief chat and you're like, but here we go again. Here we go again. You know, we go again. How did they let this happen? How did they <laughs> let this man do Mr. Peck do this Raul Peck, this so triggering, amazing documentary? And then I, I stumbled upon in, in episode three, the Herero, Herero people, because you know, of course, the Germans you know found their final solution in America through their Jim, through our Jim Crow laws. Uh craft, he crafted, they crafted the Nuremberg laws. And I thought there was a, you know, a section in World War One, I, I think the Rhinebeck or the Rheindorf section in Germany where uh, mixed race children left over from World War One is where they first started the final solution. But then they took us to the continent of Africa in episode yeah. three, where they really perfected the concentration camps and exterminating people. That's right. Before they brought it over to see how it would work uh, with That's the Jews right. in Germany. Uh, right. So just... Let's let's put it all together. I'm I'm throwing throwing a lot into this pot, and uh, today we're also going to, of course, celebrate the great August Wilson, which we've already done. But just a brief, uh, because his birthday is the same day as yours, and class class yes, this next week and class will be suspended next the week after the week after. But next Saturday we won't be here right. because. Next Saturday is literally my birthday, and I'm That's not right. Literally, I'm not gonna do it. That's the day we we have to do that. Nobody else is gonna do it. We got to do it, and we're gonna pick up that. No question. So we, we give you happy early birthday. We in there in that back end of April right there. Them them right. twenty. <laughs> All right. So you you are up to date on this, uh, and and why why is this important? And is this Falcon and the the white the the Winter Soldier based on a comic book series? Is it based on? Okay. Uh. You know, it's funny because we all know that everything is connected one way or the other. And as we were talking during the week, as all the college students out there and all the high school students are getting toward the end of the semester, which means your teachers are doubly stressed. We're grading and interacting and people are coming to cry before the mercy seat. And uh, <laughs> so I I'm encouraged to hear about uh, to hear about your student in the blog. Um, for those of you who might want to read more about how the federal government and state and local governments basically took your tax money and gave it to uh, white people in, in what is the only form of affirmative action that's actually accurate. Affirmative action means whiteness. Um, 
as a immortal technique in him said in one of one of his remixed songs it, you know what 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 uh people call affirmative action is a pathetic gesture toward re reparations but real affirmative action is whiteness it's weaponized identity weaponized whiteness uh, um, uh, affirmative action and in this case uh veterans for example who got the gi bill who could use uh use federal resources uh to finance their mortgages lower no interest mortgages and, and who you know they were able to use that financing to move into all white settlements all white newly constructed little villages and hamlets uh from which black veterans could not use their benefits because the segregation laws were in place um uh what's his name ira katz nelson the sociologist has written a couple of very good books. Uh, the one that kind of gets into the place like the, the Levitt towns of the world. Uh, I don't know if that was the place, but that's one of the more famous names that we hear. Uh, he wrote a book called When Affirmative Action Was White, which is a great title, except, you know, affirmative action mean whiteness. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I get it. And then he wrote another, another book that kind of takes it back to the preceding decades and empties it forward called Fear Itself, because we see that the same attitude uh, in the GI Bill, we see that applied across federal agencies. So while Franklin Roosevelt enters uh, American social structure memory as a hero, and 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 in many ways should be looked at in some ways uh, as a hero, as a heroic figure in terms of trying to uh, redistribute some resources, not enough. I mean, in fact, he he himself said, you know, I'm basically saving capitalism with socialism because you know people say I'm not a socialist. Well, guess who is a socialist? Jeff Bezos, guess who is a socialist? The uh, the people who own Oracle, guess who is a socialist? All those tech billionaires, some of them newly made during this uh, plague, and some of them who have who have exponentially increased their wealth. By that I mean they get public resources. They don't pay taxes. Zoom ain't pay no taxes during this year. Neither did Amazon. So what is that but socialism? Because uh, they still consume public services: fire, water, police. So anyway. Um, Katz Nelson kind of traces how those programs that came into existence during the New Deal also had uh, a deeply racist and racial uh, structure involved. And, and that's in his book, Fear Itself. So I mean, I'm glad to hear that this young lady is interrogating her own uh, upbringing and past and using the momentum of memory, the momentum of history, using study to be able to do that. Uh, so, yeah, we're in that in that season now this is the season of and so watching um yes watching um watching the, the falcon and the winter soldier you know it was interesting because for those who are kind of new initiates in what in this money making this billion dollar soon to be more than billions dollar enterprise that uh uh, the mouse <laughs> that ate the world, Disney, uh, and then, you know, Marvel are calling the Marvel Cinematic Universe. For those people new to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, the story, if you're watching The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, uh, the story even of Captain America more broadly is new to you uh, for those who are comic book focused, not new. But without getting too deep into it, because again, you can go to narrative and, and you can see how we've, we've had a long conversation about comics. And one of the ones I did mention, in fact, was tied to this uh, this story arc, which everyone knew who's kind of been paying attention to the, the talk and the, the little, little tiny leaks, which are really incentives to watch, knew was coming. Um, 
you know, for us growing up, you know, Captain America, I was introduced to Captain America. In fact, I um I was introduced to Captain America by the Avengers. And which if y'all remember, we talked about comic books in one of our episodes, talked about, you know, I the I bought the Avengers because in the Avengers Defenders War, this is like 1973. I'm in the comic book store and I had bought an Archie comic taken back to around the corner. And my pop was like, he fun spending on them funny books. And I was like, I don't really want this Archie comic. I went back and went to a little tower and I saw the Avengers. I opened it up. They fighting the Defenders. They in the middle of the Defend Avengers Defenders War. And I realized now these are sequential stories. You don't just buy one book. You got to get what came before it, what came after it. And I'm flipping through and I see the Black Panther. I'm like, oh yeah, I want this one. Can I switch? And the brother who owned the store, Brother Neely, now an ancestor, says, yeah, I don't care. Just as long as you just, I switched it out. And that's what started me. But in following Captain America and then realizing that these stories are interconnected connected to these other books, Iron Man, Captain America, Tales to Astonish, you name it. I realized in looking for Black Panther, he was he had jungle action. That was terrible name, right? But I mean, that was his book for a while. So I'm like, hmm, okay. I found Captain America, but by then Captain America had a partner he was working with named the Falcon. I'm a little black boy. I'm looking for black people. I found Black Panther, found the Falcon. Then I found Luke Cage. Oh, so I'm looking for these black people. And of course, then you find Misty Knight, then you find a few of the blacks, and, and shortly thereafter, Storm appears as they reboot the X-Men. But I want to mention uh the Falcon in what we see in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, white soldier indeed, that's true. <laughs> let me let me uh this, of course, is, is my brother Todd Burroughs. Y'all seen this book a couple of times, Marvel's Black Panther. This to me is the set. This is the best volume on Black Panther. Todd Burroughs, who's a professor at um, in 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 Newark. Oh my goodness, uh, Seton Hall in Seton Hall. Seton Hall. He's a Jersey native, Newark guy. Uh, he asked uh, me to write the afterward to it. Um, he asked McConaughey Thumber to write the forward and me to write the afterward. And I was just, you know, pleased. I'm very happy to do that because we are um, we're comic book heads. So. Let me just read to you so to set the context for the Falcon. What, what, if you all watched the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, this last episode that they released uh, at the end of this week, then you know what I'm about to say. I said, um, the same year, this that same year I had discovered him in the Avengers, meaning Black Panther, 1973, Panther got to play solo in his own book, beginning with issue number five of Jungle Action. 20 cents, 20 cents. Man. 20 cents bought me T'Challa's fight against the man ape, which my God, I hope we don't see the man ape in these Marvel movies. Come on, y'all. Because you get this is the thing about the changing same. The stereotypes never go away. They just try to make them more palpable. Y'all pay attention. If you, the more you know, the more you recognize when they have brought back a stereotype. But at any rate, I also became a Captain America fan only four short years after the Falcon had joined Cap as a partner slash sidekick. I thrilled at the October 1973 Captain America and the Falcon number 171, which actually began the story arc in 170, the issue in which Black Panther designed the Falcon's wings, creating the first Pan-African comic book hero relationship. Shortly thereafter, I started buying Luke Cage, Hero for Hire, the second African-American hero in the Marvel Universe. I was going to stop there, but let me read the next sentence because it's pertinent to what we saw in the story arc uh, in, in, Black, in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I did not know then that the black arts movement influenced Billy Graham drew 
for both that series and Jungle Action. While Graham was the first black illustrator to work on those books, there were no black writers in those early days. Then to go on and talk about the black writers that came after him, Priest, Reginald Hutland and all them, um, Christopher Priest, some of y'all combo fans know what I'm talking about. Now, why is that important? If you caught what I wrote at the end of episode five, spoiler alert, so mute and then give us about 60 seconds and you can unmute if, you, if you're watching. But if you don't, it doesn't matter. If you know the comic books, you know what was going to happen. Uh, the psychopath uh, that they gave the shield, Captain America shield to, John Walker, uh, who will eventually in comics turn into U.S. agent, which is an ultraman. He, he might be a member of that Klan caucus that Marjorie Taylor Greene and them started. I mean, you know, country. It's my country. America first. America first. America first caucus. You know, one easy next short step to blood and soil, which is some Nazi stuff. We're going to tie all this together in a minute. All of this. Jews will not replace us. Yeah, all them chants from Charlottesville coming straight out of Nazi Germany and they practiced on the Africans in German Southwest Africa. But we get there. We're going to tie all this together. So, yeah, John Walker, the uh, the Captain America who out here killing people in the streets and all this kind of thing, you know, with the shield, got blood on the shield, all this kind of thing. He ripped the Falcon's wings off. And people are like, oh, my God, I'm saying, nah, that's the setup. Because, see, Steve Rogers is an old man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He, it happens in the comics too, but not in the sequence that we're about to talk about. T'Challa, because our brother uh, Chad Bozeman is an ancestor, has transitioned. So you don't bring him on screen. You do bring the sister in. Is it Florence Nwaba? I think he plays uh, Ayo. Uh, you bring in the Dora Milaje. They come in to get the Borzimo. Yeah, because he owes us, right? Remember, he killed T'Chaka, T'Challa's father, if y'all remember uh, Captain America Civil War, which was the movie where they introduced Black Panther into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so... In the comics, Captain America knows Black Panther from back. Well, Captain America knows Black Panther because Black Panther's father knew Captain America back in the day. The story of Captain America starts in the 1940s. They're fighting World War II. They're fighting the Nazis. Steve Rogers wants to sign up. He's a little skinny dude from Brooklyn. He ain't got no muscle. He's too short. He can't really get. So he volunteers for this experiment. They shoot him up with this serum. And he grows into Captain America. Boom. It's like, bam. Now they put the uniform on him. He's over there fighting Nazis or whatever. Well, there's a backstory where he ends up in Africa because, you know, the, the Germans were fighting in Africa. I'm talking about the Nazis, not even these clowns who were down in German Southwest Africa in 1904 to 1908, which is where the the uh, the uh, the, uh, the attempted genocide of the Herero people and the Nahuatl people take place that, that Raul Peck talks about in uh, Exterminate All the Brutes. But Captain America is dropped in Africa and he's dropped into Wakanda. He's chasing Nazis. So Captain America chasing these Nazis. Reginald Hudlin does a beautiful, beautiful storyline. This when Hudlin was writing the Black Panther book, you see, because see, here's here's the thing about Wakanda. When you come into Wakanda, they don't give you no warning. You weren't supposed to come over here. Everybody know you don't come over here. So they basically just kill you and then maybe leave one person alive to go tell other people. Didn't we tell y'all not to come over here? So the Nazis gonna come in looking for gold. Yeah. The Wakanda's already done done uh, done erased. Them white boys. So here come Cap looking to fight Nazis. Now, who does he encounter? T'Chaka, T'Challa's father, who beats his ass, dropes him over the shoulder, dumps him out and says, man, I'll come back over here messing with me. So Captain America, shortly thereafter, of course, with his young sidekick, Bucky Barnes, that's the Winter Soldier, after uh, they, they, there's an explosion and they, they're, on, they're, on, they're trying to defuse a bomb on a plane at the, near the end of the war, this final mission, and there's an explosion, the plane explodes, both of them go flying into the water, into the ice. 
This is the crazy story, right? Captain America's in the ice for decades until Iron Man them find him and at the beginning of the Avengers, and that's when they thaw him out. And that's how come he's still young in the 60s and 70s. He's been in the ice for 20 some years. In the real world, Captain America was a comic book that was published. So people follow because he's beating up the Nazis. You know, same kind of thing with Superman. Superman beating up Hitler, this kind of thing. They, these are comic books, you know, propaganda as you're in the war effort. So they bring Captain America back. Marvel Comics does in the 60s, and that's how they tell the story. Now, what he didn't know, Captain America, was he thought Bucky died. Bucky went into the ice too, but who pulls him out is the other side. The the uh, the rogue German scientists, artists, they come up with some crazy stuff, and then the Russians. He ends up with the Russians because now see what the comic books are doing. They're propaganda for the nation states, and uh, yeah, that's right, that's right, Kareem. Kareem reminded me, yeah, Mbaku is the man ape. So our brother Wilson Duke, the, the Trini cat, who's playing, uh, we are vegetarians. <laughs> the one who ends up saving T'Challa them, that's the dude in the comics who becomes the man ape. Because remember, Jabari tribe ain't really trying to hang with with with, uh, with, 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 with Wakanda. They on the periphery, you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, that's absolutely right. Thank you, Jabari, for reminding me. So, and we talked about this too in, 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 in the uh, go over the narrative. We did a whole long thing on Black Panther in the context of the comics. So at any rate, Bucky gets pulled out the ice too, but he gets pulled out by the Soviets who, who mine erase him and program him to be a killer. That's where he gets the name, the Winter Soldier. By the way, the Russians also did this with a bunch of women, one of whom is the character that Scarlett Johansson plays, who reverses her programming, the Black Widow. So that's when that Black Widow movie comes out. That's the Russian side. Why is it the Russians? Because by the 50s and 60s, the Russians are the enemy. So the comic books are going to show this propaganda, right? So you got Errant Nazis still running around, the Red Skull. You got the Winter Soldier who is used to be Captain America's bull, who was like got <laughs> got turned out. Now he out here killing people in the movies, including Iron Man's parents. It's all kind of things. Anyway, all that backstory. As a kid, we get into all this stuff. You know, I'm reading Black Panther, I'm reading Captain America, reading the Avengers, all this kind of stuff. And then something interesting happens. You get a few more black writers. Black Panther goes in some interesting political directions. The Falcon is an interesting guy. You know, is he a social worker? You know, Black Panther for one time, he's got a secret identity as a school teacher in Harlem. You know, Luke Cage is a cat that busts out of prison. So they, I mean, it's a class kind of, inter some interesting class conversations going on. And so as the comics move into a new era, the 1980s and 90s, you've got, some interesting things going on. And we talked about all this stuff again. I'm not going to go over this again because we, we're talking about, we're just talking about this little piece in the larger context of caring what you laid out, Prof, in terms of the field of things we're, we're, we're putting together. So let me just get to the point with Panther. Interestingly enough, because y'all know, in fact, let's just apply our common sense. You ain't got to read no comic books to this. You just got to know a little something about being black in the world. If they shot a white man with a serum to make him a superhero, don't you think they tested it to see what it worked before? You don't think they tested it on white boys, do you? <laughs> or white girls, do you? No, if you watched episode three of Exterminate All the Brutes, then you are familiar with how exper human experimentation, experimentation starts. It starts on the people who can't stop you. And in the case of the Herero people, in what is now Namibia, German Southwest Africa. And I've never been to Namibia. I, I'm looking forward one day to going. I was able to get as close as about 
10 kilometers from the uh from the uh country line that separates South Africa from Namibia. We went up there to look at some uh some sites of early human uh human art, you know, cave, cave art. And I said, man, I wish we could just keep going. I want to go to, to Namibia. I want to go to Vinhook. I mean, you know, I mean, because because you're talking about the you know, Southwest, uh, uh, German Southwest Africa, and there was these huge resistance movements, which eventually led to the independence of Namibia. I think it was 1992, Sam Njoma, um, Swapo. I mean, it's very important. Those of you who were involved in the United States, if you're over 50 or 60 years old, you could have very much been involved in uh, the uh, Southern African uh, Liberation Support Committee. I mean, all these are diaspora movements that supported the freedom, ultimately what they call the frontline states, and then ultimately South Africa itself. So it, didn't, it haven't, haven't been in Namibia yet, but it's famous because, you know, the Europeans did there what they did everywhere else. They landed, they looked around, they said, we're going to try to take all this stuff and let's exterminate all the brutes, right? So it's what happens with the uh, uh, the Nada people, Nawa people and the Herero people is you lose as many as 100,000 people between like 1904 and 1908. Uh, these are cattle folk, the Herero. So they're, they're basically pastoralists. And the Germans caught themselves signing treaties with them that they continue to violate. And then eventually they just turn on them and say, we're just going to wipe y'all out. And so there's a genocide. They put them in concentration camps. Uh, they they experiment on them. One of the concentration camps is on an island off the coast of, of Southwest Africa. And then they take some of them back to Germany to experiment with, to see, okay, what does it mean when you're mixed race? I mean, you know, how does your skull fit with other skulls? I mean, the skull science, phrenology, let's fill up your skull with BBs and then empty it out and fill up a white skull with BB. I'm going to show you how the white people are smart. But all this mad scientist shit that eventually, this cat named Eugene Fisher, who's doing this to the Africans down there, brings that stuff back to Germany, sets up these experimentation torture uh, labs, and he, his research is uh, is 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 influencing uh, eventually Joseph Mengele, Goebbels, the propagandist. His daddy was down there in German Southwest Africa unleashing the terror. So you see, yes, yes. You want to say something, Prof? Because I mean, you can talk about it before the conflict. I was just gonna say, and they had human zoos, so uh, <laughs> where they would put, grab these Africans, bring them to France and Germany, and put them in natural habitats. How about where that? People could come and and study them. And I was also, when I was watching this, they love to document their- Oh, their, no question. They take pictures of ah. their their brutality and their inhumanity. They, 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 they record it. Yeah. They love to film themselves being brutal with men holding up hands that they just chopped off. Uh, and then positioning folk in these pictures. Yeah. And it was one moment that was so poignant because, you know, those Africans were- brutes they were animals to right. be in zoos like any other animal there was one where the man is touching a black woman's hair and she's like you know and they, they said in that moment you see the humanity of of this woman no with her baby and she, you know like get off of me that's right because i'm that's conscious right. i'm a conscious being and i know what you're doing is wrong and i don't speak your language but you are an evil person and i'm gonna <laughs> You know, so I just wanted to, you know, even the human zoos and and there was a, a point where Truman, he said, uh, when when dealing with an animal, treat them like an animal. How about that? Oh, no, Harry Truman was a buck cold racist. No, quite. though, you love Truman. Y'all better back up. In fact, Prof, uh, uh, you may have heard the name. Some of y'all may have heard the name. You probably have heard the name. Ata Benga. O-T-A Benga. So it wasn't just France. It wasn't just Germany. Y'all look up Ata Benga. Ata Benga was the Mbuti brother. Uh, who some people call pygmy or twa people. No, not pygmy. Central African. 
first time he was in the Bronx Zoo. The Bronx. The Bronx. The Bronx Zoo. Natural habitat, as you say. So America's like, oh, these Nazis don't even do it. These your friends. In fact, they're more than your friends. These your blood relatives. The children. No, they are your children. Exactly. What was the book? Uh, Hit, not Hitler's Willing Executioners. Um, Hitler, Hitler's American Model is the book where they came over here. In fact, uh, they went everywhere looking for models of how to deal with black people. In fact, the South Africans came to America. Jan Smuts, who was the prime minister in South Africa, not only did he come to America, he visited HBCUs, not just any HBC, he visited Howard. Well, how do y'all sit? And then he went back and set up Bantu education. Because see, we can't, we can't keep them all out of school. We're going to need a handful of them to be trained as lawyers and maybe some functionaries, some administrators, but they need to have a difference. How y'all doing it over here? I want y'all to think about that real hard when you start thinking about HBCU curriculum. But at any rate, yeah, I mean, you know, because I mean, what is the function? We're training people to be leaders. Oh, really? Are you? Because if they coming out telling people to just do what they did, then that's not leadership. That's Judas goat ship. But at any rate. Back, back, uh, back to Carl Lumbly's question or comment. Oh, come on now. Oh, oh, oh. Mm. oh I, do you remember the children's movie that Carl Lumley made? probably his best known movie, particularly among young people, about the enslaved African who escaped and was teaching other black people how to read. Come on, Doc. The movie is called Night John. Come on. <laughs> Carl Lumley played Night John. Y'all go look at Night John. I was teaching people how to read. Oh, when you said that, man. Oh, wait a minute. What am I doing? All right. One of y'all is going to remember. Do you remember that Carl Lumley played a superhero? I think Carl Lumley was the original Spawn. Was he? He played a superhero, but this was before, what's my man's name? Michael Jai White or whatever, before Michael. the movie. He Michael. played, oh, it was a television series. Anyway, so this ain't the first time Carl Lumley been in a superhero. Again, the momentum of memory. In some ways, I think casting Carl Lumley, if I, if I, I if it was my guess between the showrunners, the producers, the writers, that might have been a tribute to Carl Lumley's work as heroic figures in the films. Because Carl Lumley's a hero. Y'all go look up Carl Lumley. Carl Lumley is one of the children, the grandchildren of Paul Rosen. No question about it. And when he's sitting there telling him that, all right, let me, let me close the loop. So here we are. So as you say, they're experimenting on black folk. In fact, just to close the loop off on the Herero people, uh, several years ago, the Namibians told the Germans, well, Germany apologized, but ain't nothing come with it. No money payments. If there are going to be money payments, they're saying they're going to negotiate because money payments won't go to the families of the people who were killed because there was as many as 100,000 people killed. Uh, the Herero lost as many as 75 percent of their people. Um, the novel people may have lost maybe half their people. But not but pause. So those of you thinking about the final solution thinking about the Nazis and, and the Holocaust in Germany, which caught up not only uh, Jews, uh, European Jews, also caught up uh, the Roma, the people who people use the slur gypsy. You mean the Roma people, they were caught up. And there's a book by my colleague at Howard, Clarence Luzane, uh, that talks about Hitler's black villain, uh, victims. Uh, also, Furpo Carr, who, uh, no relation, who writes about Hitler's black, there were black people in Germany who got caught up, many of them coming out of Africa. And so, when uh we'll come back to the experimentation in about two minutes not even that long because i'm just going to tie this up with the namibians 
See, Africa has started to reach out now. I was telling y'all about the uh, the new book on the museums, the British Museum, where they're saying we want our stuff out to museums too. Y'all gonna give us our stuff. And so that's a testy thing. The French have been a little bit more generous. The British Museum, hell, if you take everything that the English took from everywhere else, and some of y'all crying crocodile tears over that 99-year-old man who's no longer here, but you know what? Just try your face. Grow up. But at any rate... Wait, uh, I, I want to pause and sit in that for one second because I... I watched a little bit of it, and if you watch Exterminate All Fruits, they, they were playing that commencement song that we all marched to. Pomp and circumstance. Yes. We all marched to that, and that's British. And then the Nazis, they borrow that that whole, and as I was watching a procession today, I also wanted to ask you about the obsession with order and marching and songs and flags and you know all of this to bury people because i was like did, did the africans i know we had rituals and, and burial but they're so specific in how where who can stand where and how much space needs to be and how your feet need to be and i was watching them kick and step and kick and step and i was like hmm, the germans borrowed that too from the british from the british in that song and i was like we march across that stage to get our diploma Dun, 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 dun. And I'm like, that is, what does this mean? Is, is this a, they really indoctrinate us on all of these levels. They do. They do, Professor Hunter. In fact, um, like everything else, when we sit in it for a minute, we start wondering why. And so I remember, this was maybe 20 years ago, I went looking for when that particular song was introduced in the United States. And if memory serves me correctly, it was Princeton. It was a Princeton graduation where it was played at the end of the ceremony as kind of a tribute. I think the guy who wrote it was getting an honorary degree or something like that. They liked the song so much they made it the processional. And uh, there is often at the, uh, you know, you hear Palm right? But then there's another one that is often used at, at the beginning of commencements where you hear the timpanis come in first, they play the Howard. And then you hear that song is called the war march of the priests to what you you've introduced. Now, my first year at Howard, I had a rented robe. I didn't have an academic regalia. And then once you have an academic appointment, you know, if you didn't buy your robe at graduation, then you don't, you know, the only thing I had that I owned was a hood. And I got that hood when I graduated from law school because I refused to wear uh, that black robe. I had on a booba, I had African clothing on. I walked across the stage and the man hooding everyone next to the dean was a professor, one of only three, four black professors on the faculty at Ohio State at the time. My man, the great David Williams, the great tax attorney who ended up being athletic director at, at uh, Ohio State, then eventually Vanderbilt. He's the one who revamped. That's why Vanderbilt had them black coaches down there with Dave Williams. But anyway, senior vice president at Vanderbilt. But at that time, he was professor of law at Ohio State. And when he saw me coming across in my African clothes and white folks couldn't do nothing about it, we got there. You know, he gave me my diploma, I shook hand, and they give you your hood. But I didn't have a hood. You bend down, they hood you. I didn't have a, a hood because I didn't. I'm not wearing. No, I'm not renting no hood. David Williams in front of all them people at Ohio State took his hood off. Mm. 
ancestors in there right now. I love that man. He's an ancestor now. I don't give a damn about that hood, except he gave me that hood. And so after it was over, everybody had to turn their hoods in, except me. <laughs> the black man gave me his hood. And I said, that's my hood. I tried to get back to him. I said, probably. He said, nah, didn't I put that hood over your head? I said, yes, sir. He said, that's your hood. So at any rate, so the first graduation from Howard, I had the black robe and I put on Dave Williams hood because purple is the color of the law. Uh, a PhD is white and blue. So, you know, I had on the purple hood, but I have a law degree. So no problem. I just put it on. I ordered a I ordered a full scale new robe. Sister Betty Goodwin, a retiree of Howard, who orders all the robes for people who want robes. Now you're now you're a faculty member. Twenty one years ago, she said, you know, we got to get you a robe. I said, yeah, I said, but I'm not wearing no robe because your academic robe, your Ph.D. robe is supposed the body of the robe is supposed to be the color of the school you got your Ph.D. from. Now, I'm not wearing no temple red, no temple cherry red. No. <laughs> so she said, well, what you want? I said, let's go because I'm not from D.C. DMV. I said, let's go. They got stores that sell African fabric, don't they? He said, yeah. So I took the train down one day. I wasn't teaching. Betty Goodwin picked me up at the at Union Station. We drove out to Maryland to a place with African fabric. I picked out a nice piece that I wanted. We sent it off. I guess Jostens or whoever makes the academic regalia about um, two months later. I had the robe that I wear. It's full African cloth. <laughs> Boy, you, you talk about politics and respectability. Some of them, Howard Negro said, what school did you go to? I said, that's important. I went to Africa. That's the school I went to. <laughs> <laughs> that's got the three stripes. It's got the hood. Everything else the same. In fact, it's anyway, my point is this, though. I said I ought to say this. And then I said, you know what? And I, tell, I used to tell my students this all the time. I said, you know when I know we're going to be a step closer to freedom? When we start commencement, everybody's seated, the faculty start marching in, and instead of them songs they play, we're going to have 50 drummers, 200 dancers, and we're going to come in, and maybe we'll have uh, my man, uh, 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 Babatunde uh, Olatunji, uh, the, the, the first song on his uh, on his album, Drums of Passion from 1960. This Nigerian who came with the Morehouse as Michael Olatunji got to America, found out the people in the diaspora wanted to be African. So he's like, oh, no, I'm Babatunde Olatunji. I'm going to use my Yoruba name. And he cut that song. And then first I said, I will come in. And now we all going to come in. We're going to have them hot ass robes on. It's May. Why y'all out here in these hot monastic robes? Because like your master, we're going to be dressed in African clothes. We're going to come in. Aki wo wo, oloko ile, jo wo bi mi dele, jo wo bi mi dele, ili baba me. Aki wo wo, oloko ile, oloko ile, oshe ho. You know what I mean? Let's do it, let's do it. And everybody be dancing. They was like, that ain't gonna happen. I said, that's why I know you niggeros ain't free. Aki wo wo, take me home. Aki wo wo, take me home. Aki wo wo, take me to the home of my father. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oshe ho, that mean thank you. The home, Ile, my house. Take me home. Y'all ain't gonna do that because you ain't free. You know what you're gonna march into? Dun, 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 dun. The war march of the priests. Oh, you're a priest now, and it's war march. The reason you have the robe on, read any book on the history of medieval uh, universities in Europe. There are a number of good ones. Um, there's one by Clark, William Clark, on academic. Uh, the rise of the modern research university is very interesting. The robes symbolize the church because all those institutions come out of the church. The ecclesiastical courts are the foundation for the modern legal system. That's why you take an oath. That's why you got past the bar. That's why the, the whole university structure 
is based on the priests in the front, you sitting in these chairs here and you basically getting lectured to and the thinking, and then you have an examination and then you go forward where all this stuff, everything from proctors to exams, all that stuff comes out of the church model. And when you commence, when you graduate, you put on the robes of the of the monks. That's why you're wearing them hot ass robes. And why are we in these hot ass robes? Now, you know, if you don't know, now, you know, as Biggie would say. So um, when Pet talks about those origins, the and then you watched this funeral, a little bit of the funeral. Order is how human societies replicate themselves. You learn the protocol. In fact, your friend. Now, my friend, long time friend student uh angie porter she has is doing uh doing a study she just presented a paper on it last week on coming up with what she's calling africana legal theory mm-hmm. and at the center of it is this examination of the concept of protocol in the law and she's looking for concepts in africana ways of knowing that do not rely on european notions of protocol but what is constant is there are terms terms by which human societies order themselves. So, for example, in the death ritual, there are many things. I mean, many societies in Africa, for example, you wear white to a funeral. You know, because this 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 soul has transitioned and is now going into the great space. You don't wear black. That would be absurd. Some Asian societies, you see what I'm saying? So the Europeans inverted. They got black. You wear black. It's mourning. Why are you mourning? This is a celebration. They are now going to, it's really all tied to worldview. There's a very good book, and I can't think of the name of the author right now. It's an older book. It's called Thinking in Time. Is it Thinking in Time? Oh, no, 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 no. That's Bolt Johnson's book, um, Unwinding the Clock. There's another, it's called, I think it's called Move Moving in Time. It's an examination of how the martial foundations of many European uh, cultures. By martial, I mean martial, meaning fighting, meaning war, meaning the war march of the priests. Wait a minute, priests are at war? Hell yeah, don't you remember in Sunday school when they made y'all used to sing, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. You eight years old don't realize you singing about the Crusades. And you better be damn glad that you weren't a child in the Crusades because they had something called the Children's Crusade where them white boys marched their children across. And when they got there, when they got to confront the Muslims, they sold them into slavery. Anyway, so yeah. I'll think about the next time you, you gearing up to sing Onward Christian Soldiers. So the martial, the kind of fighting spirit in this Christianity, this expansionist, militaristic, it is in the way that the ordered logic of everything from music to ritual, so this precision marching, I was a drum major in the Hillsborough High School marching band. My junior year, for two years, my junior year, we had a band director who did the martial style, right? Though y'all know, flat foot, you play toward the stands, you move, and we were okay at it. She couldn't get me to do the martial style. I'm out front with the baton. But hey, I've been watching Tennessee State. My cousin's in them, so I'm, I'm high-stepping. Everybody else, Mark, you can't stop. Well, you made me the drum major. What you going to do? I'm still giving the directions. I'm still moving people around. And on Friday night, when we in the, st- in the stadium, ain't nobody complaining. <laughs> the next year is when we got Willie Moore, the brother, my man. Willie Moore changed the whole band style to the HBCU band style. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Them, uh, those, those, those black 
high school bands where your band director came out of HBCU, Carver, uh, George Washington Carver's all over the country. I'm thinking about the one in Tennessee, Booker T. Washington down in Atlanta. Y'all know them schools. Y'all tell me them high stepping schools in Texas and Florida, you know, where your, where your, your band director went to Bethune or went to Texas Southern. And so, you know, that's when you see the stuff, right? Look at the two styles. I went to Ohio State for grad school and law school. They call them the best damn band in the land. It's core style. Then they put a little swag in it. And they're like, wow. Nah, the HBCU bands are also precision, but then they do the dance routine. Why? Because the precision can be used for different purposes. That full marching, that stiff formation, that's the way military drills because it's a martial cultural logic involved in that. So there's a, there's a, there's a fighting sense. You got to order people in precision because you're, you're, you're moving toward an objective and that objective is often uh, exterminate all the brutes. Exterminate all the brutes. Force, harm, force for harm. So yes. So Philip, it's not, it's not, it's not any, you know, it's, that's not unusual. But now one commonality, because we are all human, different. And that's the last one I'll say, we'll keep, keep going. Because again, Lumley ain't really left Falcon and Falcon and Winter Soldier not going anyway. In fact, I'm about to tie it to this. The, um, where you put your ancestors is very important. Some cultures that are transitory, nomadic, you often see fire rituals. They'll just dispose of the body and send the body, send the physical form back where the spirit is going. But many cultures, sedentary cultures, it's very important where your ancestors are. That's why when you disturb people's ancestors, that's why when they come over here, these settler colonists and white people out, their ancestors are buried there. They can't leave that land. Because that's what, where your answer, and those of you who know these black traditions, they are not just continental African traditions. They are global African traditions. So all y'all who are, if you're from the United States of America and you got people in the South and they got them little church cemeteries where your ancestors are, even if nobody's been put in there in the last 40, 50 years, some of y'all know about the ritual of washing the graves. I, you know, my mother and failing it, and then my sister picked it up. You need to go down there. You make sure that those graves are clean. What they are gleaming white. That lime, you take it. Right, that's what. That's what. This is where my mother is buried. This is where my father is buried. This is where I want to come back and be buried. These are the places, you know, your places. And Europeans do that. That's what. That's what. Uh, you know, Westminster Abbey. Abbey. I mean, this is you, you put certain answers. The Louvre, for example, not the Louvre, not the Louvre, not the Louvre. Um, the the Pantheon in Paris. I've been to the Pantheon. You know, Moliere. I mean, you put your philosophers. This is where they are. So if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for all other humans. Right? I mean, so don't don't you know, you, you when you try to demote people from humanity, what you're really trying to do is convince yourself that you're human. This ain't really got nothing to do with those Africans you mistreated. This is not this is not out of Benga in the Bronx Zoo. This isn't those people who are in the zoos in Paris. I mean, these are not in their natural habitat. This is you saying I'm not human. So I got to build my humanity by taking your humanity or making my making me over you. It's a sickness that must ultimately be eradicated. And. When they. Are creating in the contemporary mythology, which is what comic books are, myth-making, a Captain America, their leader, the Marvel equivalent of Superman, then they're going to enhance him with these performance-enhancing drugs, the super soldier serum. It's a beautiful story. 
They inject him. The kid becomes a god, like all superheroes are. It's all mythology. And then, you know, he's a god representing truth, justice, and the American way. Oh, no, that's Superman. Right. Who was an alien until he landed where? In Kansas. Go read Jerry Schuster and them. Who were Jewish? It's a whole thing. Oh, books on that, you know. I mean, because what are they doing as well? We're going to show y'all that we, too, are part of this myth. We'll make up a Superman, this kind of thing. Clark Kent. So the Marvel answer in some ways, uh, contemporary, is Captain America. And then we get to the 80s and 90s, and you got more people thinking differently, and the society is different. Whereas the 40s, you got Superman, Captain America fighting the Nazis. Every once in a while, you get a little aberrant story in. For example, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Mardson, Professor Mardson, he and his wife, uh, they made a movie out of it. There's a book been written about it. Oh, uh, Jill Lepore wrote a book on Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, oh, y'all want some history. Go back and read the history of Wonder Woman. You wonder why she got a lasso and dressed in a little, in a little tight, skinny outfit? It ain't got nothing to do with Amazons. It's got a whole lot to do with bondage and sexual innuendo. Go read the history. Because what's she doing? She tying up men with the last with the lasso. Oh, those, those first episodes, those first comics in Wonder Woman, the comic authority in them. And you can't be look at this. There's a whole panel where she got this man tied up. Mm, hell no. What are you thinking about? Anyway, so you get every once in a while, you get something slipped in. But this stuff is really propaganda in a lot of ways. By the 60s, the Russians are the enemies. So you got the uh, Crimson Dynamo. You got uh, Black Widow. You got, um, of course, Bucky. The Winter Soldier, who they now he out here killing people, the agent for the Russians, the Red Skull, the old Nazi is lingering. Now you're in the 80s and 90s. Something's going to shift. Now, Carl Lumley, who plays Isaiah Bradley in, hmm, what did I do with it? Ah, yes. Who played Isaiah Bradley. When you're watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier, that's the first episode they see him. And then Sam comes back by itself. Because Sam and Bucky, the Winter Soldier, who has had his mind deprogrammed by the Africans. Remember the end of Captain American Civil War? Steve Rogers takes him to uh, to Wakanda and meets up with T'Challa, who is the son of the older Black Panther who killed, who beat who beat Steve Rogers ass before he went in the ice. So now him and the son have bonded. And he said, I got to bring Bucky somewhere because everybody looking for him. And I got to get this thing out of his mind. So they put him in a deep cryogenic sleep. So they can work his mind out. And of course, we see in Falcon and Winter Soldier, the sister Io is like, I'm the one who helped you, you know, got them death orders out of your head. Whatever. So you're going to give me Zemo. I'm, I'm going to give you a couple of days to work it out. But then we come in to get Zemo, us and the sisters. So um, he's the Wakandans are the one that switched him to the guy he is now. So they go see Isaiah Bradley. Who is Isaiah Bradley? Well, here's the fine. Here's the loop. Because Bucky takes Sam. Sam don't know. It's an Isaiah Bradley. They come up in the house. The grandson out there like, well, who? Well, mm, no, he don't want to see y'all. Uh, not a spoiler alert. Y'all go look up a young superhero called The Patriot. That's when I first found out about Isaiah Bradley. It wasn't in what I'm about to show you. It was in a panel in a comic when Steve Rogers uh, was out chasing after these young kids. They end up being the young Avengers. That's what they call them. And one of them is a black kid in a kind of red, white, and blue outfit. And he's chasing this kid. And eventually, they he catches up to him. And this young black kid, teenager, looks at him and says, man, you ain't no real Captain America. He said, what you talking about? He said, that ain't even aim your shield. That's my grandfather's shield. What? <laughs> That's how they slip in the introduction 
to the boy's granddaddy. So when y'all watching Falcon and Winter Soldier, the first time they go over there and the grandson is all protective, that's the kid that eventually will be the Patriot in the Young Avengers whenever they get around to making that movie. Just letting y'all know. So now the Falcon comes back around without the white dude. Because remember, first time Isaiah's like, get out of my house. Falcon said, we're going to have a black bonding session. This time, the young boy's out there, the, the grandson with his boy, they're out there shooting basketball. Where you going? I'm going to see your granddad. All right. I'll be in there. In other words, this is the governance structure. Who are black people to each other? You ain't got the white boy with you. All right. You can go talk to him, but I'll be in there. Meaning what? He ain't by himself now. You don't think, don't, don't, don't get it twisted now. We out here playing basketball, but I got my eye on you, sir. So he comes in and that's when this storyline is introduced, which you can't get it in the Falcon in the winter. So there it is. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Hunter, come in and tell us who was the superhero that Carl Lumley played? Muted. You muted, dude. I mean, still. You still muted. I got it from Uraeus, actually. He texted me. He said, Uraeus was the comic book man. What was the name? Mantis. Mantis. I remember that. I don't know if you remember. It was only on for us. It was like Frank's Place with Tim Reed. What a great show. And then it just went away because it opened with uh, Tim Reed's Frank Place. You remember that on CBS? I and don't. It, this is, this is how quick, you know, it's like you got to catch stuff. It was, oh, it, I mean, I, let me just, I, I'll just tell y'all right quick, 30 seconds. It's never been put, on, it's never been available on DVD. It's never been re uh, uh, released by CBS or Viacom, whoever owns it. Rem, some of y'all remember, it was, a, it was a, I don't think it ran one season. This black professor in like Boston, somewhere in New England, his father passed and he had to go to New Orleans to take over, to either sell or take over the little restaurant they had, the family restaurant. He's a professor. He don't want to come down to the South. He wasn't raised down there. It's kind of thing. He'd been gone for so long. He gets there and falls in love with the staff, the crew, the people, he meets a girl. I think, in fact, it was uh, Daphne Reed. I mean, I think she played the, the love entity. So, so in real life, right, the Reeds. And, and the show would open. It's only a half hour show on CBS. And the opening credits, they would show all these sepia uh, pictures of New Orleans, and it had the great Louis Armstrong. Do you know what it means to miss New Orleans? And that's where my heart has been. Oh, man. And I love to see the lazy Mississippi hurrying on to spring. Mm. Oh, the rocking band. Oh, man, my man, Louis Armstrong. I used to live for that. I How mean, do you do this? How do you do this? What? No, I mean, but that was the beginning of the show, right? And then it went away. Similarly, I want to say it was Fox. Uraeus knows. Uraeus probably got the damn show somewhere, tape somewhere. Uraeus is the man on the comic books. I'm saying, um, Carl Lumley played Mantis. Yeah, it was, I'm sorry. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, uh, uh, what's the uh, spawn? Todd McFarlane. It was Mantis. That's right. And of course, black people, young black people, I don't know if it was a teenager then, but then Mantis, and then it was gone. Damn. So Carl Lumley played a superhero before. So at any rate, so in Falcon and Winter Soldier, he comes in, he sits with the brother, they start talking, and Carl Lumley, if you watch it, he gives you an intriguing storyline that ain't even the first letter in the first word, in the first sentence, in the first paragraph, in the first panel of the comic that tells the real story. What Carl Lumley introduces is 
before they shot up that white boy that y'all call Captain America, Steve Rogers, with that serum, they tried it out on all of us. Captain America is a result of the Tuskegee experiment, except they don't call it the Tuskegee experiment. They call it what we have called it, whether it happens to Herrero in German Southwest, but they call it now Namibia or back in Germany. Oh, by the way, one thing they did do, though, these brothers and sisters in Namibia, this happened in the last three, four years. They went to Berlin and they demanded and the German government gave up some of the skulls of their ancestors they took up there to make those cranial measurements with. And so the Namibians received them there. Y'all go online. Y'all can see how they, you know, you want to you give us our ancestors back because took their heads up there. Are they good for cutting off? In fact, get Ngugi Wathiango's book, Something Torn and New. I always have it around because I teach this book a lot. He opens this book with how the, the, the British or any of these other groups would go into Africa or go into the, uh, the, the not the Caribbean. Well, yes, they did it in Caribbean too. The Spanish did it in the Caribbean, but they would go and cut off the heads of the leaders and take the heads back to their museums. You know what? They, these are sick people and their descendants are sick too for keeping that stuff up there. You know, in the case of Sardi Bartman, they kept her body up there in France for years. The South Africans finally got her back. But the, yeah, the, the Herrero people got some of those skulls back, but the Germans weren't just doing it to them. They got skulls from all over Southern Africa. And some, many of them are still there. There may be hundreds of skulls or more up there, but they got 25 of them back. So at any rate, what you see is that um, Isaiah Bradley is telling um, Sam Wilson, the Falcon, man, they experimented on me for 30 years, bro. They took my blood. They tried to perfect this serum again. They they experimented on all us in World War II, and everybody died but me, and they wanted to leave them all behind. I had to go and get them, all this stuff, and that's how they made your friend. You know, your friend? So he left you that shield. I don't want that damn shield. Let me tell you something, bro. I don't want that shield. I'm going to tell you right. They would never let a black man be Captain America. And even if they did, no self-respecting black man would want to be. And so, you know, and they hype this in this series, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. They said this whole thing is going to be about patriotism. It's going to be about complicated legacies. It's going to be, yeah, if you really wanted to do it justice, you would get, this is the graphic novel version. I bought it back when my brother, in fact, Jeff uh, me. he the one who clipped me to it. In 2003, two brothers, Robert Morales, who's now an ancestor, is the writer, and the great Kyle Baker. You may know Kyle Baker. He did a graphic novel on Nat Turner. Uh, he worked with uh, Aaron Magruder and Hudlin on the graphic novel Birth of a Nation, which is a fact. You can get that graphic novel. You guys know what I'm talking about. I mean, this is a fact where it's like, what if black people had their own state in, in America? It's, it's fascinating, Birth of a Nation. But these two, Morales and Baker, 2003, a seven issue run collected in one volume, if you want it this way, called Truth. Mm. This is the story of how Isaiah Bradley got shot up. And the thing is, they follow three men. Isaiah Bradley, that's the one Carl Lumley's playing in Falcon and Winter Soldier just for these cameos. The son, he says, this young man leaves his wife and unborn child behind to serve his country, promising that he will return. It's a promise he may not be able to keep. The second of the three, Maurice Canfield. The son of a wealthy industrialist, Maurice puts his idealism to use as a labor organizer and is about to learn whether it holds up on the battlefield. The third of the three, Luke Evans, a former soldier from world, the First World War. Man, 
Let me, I'm going to resist the urge. So many heroes at the first world. Go and look up something called the Battle of Henry Johnson from Albany, New York. Luke Evans, a former sergeant from the First World War. Evans bears a scar on his head and bitterness in his soul. Cut down in rank because he stood up to a white officer. He finds himself dealing with more of the same injustices in his second year. Three black men entered the U.S. Army to fight for their country during World War II and find themselves facing even more discrimination and cruelty than they ever imagined. Illegally experimented on by their own government, all three become prototypical super soldiers, but only one will survive as a Captain America the government denied the existence of for decades. Now, this is the first panel. This is just this was the cover. If you get just the single issues here is Isaiah Bradley with his with his girlfriend. They go into the Harlem in July 1940. You see this right here? That's the famous statue, Lift Every Voice and Sing, that is gone. They don't have the original now. It was there. Augusta Savage did that. They only have models. The Schomburg got one. In fact, my man Morales studied at the Schomburg. Every page of this comic was based in history. The, the World's Fair had declared a Negro week. And I'll just show you a panel to get you, get you, whet your appetite. Because this ain't in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. You'll see old Isaiah Bradley sitting there with the letters that the girl wrote that they kept from him, that the nurse, and I love how they sneak stuff in. This nurse was trying to help me. So she had me declared dead, and that's how I got away. They think I'm dead. <sighs> I have stood at the grave. Remember, Professor Hunter, a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, we, we talked about Monroe Nathan work that's at right. Tuskegee. Monroe work is buried in the same little graveyard. Talk about burial practices. See, when you go to H some HBCUs have this. Tuskegee is one. When you go to Tuskegee University, there's a boulder that says Washington on the side. That is that marks the grave of Booker Washington. Then you go down a little hills. It's not very large at all. Just outside the rebuilt chapel. The first chapel burned down. The new chapel is a beautiful place. And you go down a few steps and you see the graveyard for the others who are buried. That's where George Washington Carver is. That's where Monroe Nathan Work and his wife are. And there's that's where a little grave is there with the headstone that reads Eunice Rivers, which of course we know that was the nurse as those white boys were experimenting with those black men in syphilis. Uh, uh, what's the sister's name? Yale Drama. Uh, I think about August Wilson now. Um, oh, married to- uh, Felicia yeah. Rashad. Oh. Hmm? Felicia Rashad or- No, uh, younger, but- uh, oh, uh, Angela Bassett? Angela Bassett. Thank yeah. you. Don't you love how excellence you don't have you could just get it all these people in this stuff, so and so or ex rapper starting. No, no, we talking about actresses. So very quickly, we got to, yes, yes. Angela Bassett played Eunice Rivers in that HBC HBO. No, no, it, was, it was it was um it what? was not Angela Bassett. It was uh oh my goodness, I just interviewed her. Uh, and she's been in a lot. She uh, she she was in uh, Twelve Years a Slave. She played the the black uh, enslaved person. Alfred Woodard. Alfred Woodard. Didn't was, she play? Was, Alfred was, there was there was. Oh my goodness! Now you got me thinking about. It. I thought it was Angela. Yeah, Angela Bassett played Rosa Parks. Yes, yeah. Alfred Woodard. Thank you. Thank Woodard. you. I think Fishburne was in Miss Evers' Boys too. But yes, 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 Miss Evers' Boys. It, the fictional name is Evers. The real name is Eunice Rivers. I've stood at her grave. I would say she is one of the, she's a complex figure and misunderstood. People, you know, when we wanted to insult people back in the day, back in the day, when I was in grad school, we would call them Nurse Rivers. <laughs> in other words, when them sellout Negroes that would come and show up on the opposite side of an argument you have in, in, in an academic meeting or something, here come Nurse Rivers. In other words, you the Negro that come in with them that they use to attack us. 
So, you know, uh, my man uh, from Utah, HR 40, whose father went, got a PhD from Ohio State and was on the faculty of Florida A&M for decades, whose son is now was an ex-football player NFL, who who going to vote against HR 40 when it come when it came, when he voted against HR 40 Owens. Nurse Rivers. That's what we would call him. Here come Nurse Rivers. Talking about he ain't gonna vote for it. But the more you know about Eunice Rivers, the more you realize she was in an impossible situation and she was trying to help even as she knew she didn't know all of what was going on. But she knew enough to try to protect these men from certain things. So anyway, when you see Carl Lumley sitting there talking to Anthony Mackey and he says this nurse tried to help me, you see the letters that she gives him that they had kept from him over the years that the girl has written. But you got to go to the comic book to see them when they were young before he ever goes out and they go in and he said, and, and, and she says, Isaiah, did you hear the WB Du Bois himself is supposed to be talking here today? He says, yeah, baby, what's he supposed to be saying? And then she says, oh, it's something about how Negroes have to learn their place, how we have to give up our hopes in ourselves. You know how he is. Then he looked like, huh? Then he says, I swear, Faith, you're lucky you finally got a man that don't take you serious. Then they started laughing and stuff. It's, I mean, this is just a pre, it's a beautiful story. Then you go, I mean, and, and you read how each one of these men coming out of Cleveland, coming out of New York, coming, you know, they, they and then they get in the war and the shit that happens to them is unspeakable. Isaiah Bradley eventually is the only one that survives Bradley. And here's where it gets deep. Hitler tries to recruit Bradley for the Nazis. In other words, what is the point that Kyle Baker and Robert Morales are making? They are all the same. In other words, you think the Americans are any better than the Nazis? They all want the advantage. Don't you know they experimenting on people here? I mean, and that's why they named it truth. In fact, the last line in the preview, he says, it says, Robert, Writer Robert Morales and artist Kyle Baker present an unexpected and controversial declassifying of the Sentinel of Liberty's origin. Their collaboration reveals that it's not black and white or red, white, and blue. It's red, white, and black. <laughs> That's the subtitle, truth, red, white, and black. They can't let but a little drop of that in, in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But the real miniseries, make one just on truth, on the backstory of Isaiah Bradley. Maybe we'll get it. But so... The question then becomes, again, never leaves from our sister Sonia Sanchez. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I think the name of her play was Uh-huh. Like, uh-huh. You get finished talking, uh-huh. But how do it free us? In other words, is this change in knowledge going to free us? Because what happens next is Bucky gives the package to Sam. So the Marvel Cinematic Universe is diverging from the comics because in Captain America 171, as I read for y'all, Captain America goes to Wakanda with his sidekick, the Falcon, to see his friend Black Panther because they Avengers and Black Panther's daddy beat him up before he went in the ice. So now they friends. Black Panther gets to talking to Falcon. They black men. He comes in issue 170. I'll introduce his eyes. Cool. Sam, Sam, man. Issue 171, I'll never forget when I was a kid, I read, oh, because the cover, you see the Falcon. Because before that, he had no wings. He running around, fighting, you know, he got the, you know. The issue 171, see him busting out. You got Captain America, then you got the Black Panther on one side, then you got the Falcon on the other side, and it says, see Falcon's new wings. Wings? The Falcon walks in, Captain America, what's that? 
My man's hooked me up with some wings. Oh, shit, yeah, sidekick. That's America. We're Africa, Jack. My man's to hook me up. Black Panther made the Falcons' original wings. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? T'Challa. But, of course, Chad Bozeman is gone. They're rethinking how they're going to do the thing. So this time, it was Bucky who went, because he got a relationship with the Dora Milaje, and I guess it was Shuri, which is a beautiful way to do it. It was Shuri who hooked up the Falcon, except the Falcon ain't going to be the Falcon no more. Why? Remember the Latino brother, the Latinx cat, when he was like, what you want to do these wings? He said, you keep them. In the comics, he turns into the Falcon because the name stays with those wings. And Sam decides, I'll keep the shield, get a new tricked out uniform, which I pray is everything they put in that box that the sister sent him. And he'll be the new Captain America because even though Baker and Morales are challenging the question of patriotism, it still reverts to the red, white, and blue at the end. So even though Carl Lumley is like no self-respecting black man would want to be it, guess what self-respecting black man with his sister and they fixed the boat and the community. And yeah, because ultimately at the end of the day, you got to come home to the promise of America. In other words, that keep on with that abusive relationship, no matter how many times we punch you in the face in Brooklyn uh, uh, Heights, Minnesota. Every time we punch you in the face, 13-year-old boy in Chicago. Every time we punch you in the face, y'all scream, y'all argue, and then you say, but we're going to keep with the promise. What promise? Boy, you people. Okay, so clearly Raul Peck didn't help you, which means mm -hmm. that don't for you. Clearly, Captain America, the Winter Soldier didn't help you. Falcon and Winter Soldier didn't help you. And so I'm sitting listening to, and this is my problem, Professor Hunter, in between classes and meetings when I'm sitting here, because I really don't leave the house. I, um, you go to the grocery store or whatever, I'm out. Let me swing by, see my man, Holly Garima. And 10 minutes sitting in the back of a room, not getting too close, even though he got his two shots. And now, nah, brother, I'm still waiting to get my dose and I'm going back. There. I'm not taking no chance. I got two masks on. He walking me through his latest project and I'm sitting there and the light just went on. I don't need to see no more trauma porn. I know I know the books the trauma porn is based on. What does it do to us to keep watching ass whippings, no matter how well done? And then so what's what's the solution? Well, we, we have to fight. Wait. At what point do you just get to say, these people evil? You got a clan caucus, as you said. Marjorie Taylor Greene and them. Hey, God, go, God bless you. Go with it. I'm the fool if I keep talking about reaching across the aisle for anything other than a Mac 10. I'm the fool if I'm reaching across the aisle with an open hand. That's not on you. That's on me at this point, which means it's on every teacher. It's on every institution builder. It's on every momentum of memory keeper because guess who also would not be reaching across the wild? Everybody up to about our grandparents' generation that they keep trying to make movies and re-narrate the history to make us think that they was all marching because they saw the flag and a tear roll down their eye. And then they said, one of these days, we're going to get that. Y'all better go read Jack Roosevelt. April 15th was Jackie Robinson Day. No, 16th. Yeah, 15th, Jackie Robinson Day. Jackie Robinson, and I never had it made, his posthumous play, uh, posthumously published autobiography said, I don't stand to salute the flag and I don't sing the anthem. At the time of my birth in, in Cairo, Georgia, and at this moment, I never had it made. That was a veteran, a Buffalo soldier, a man who was court-martialed because he wouldn't stand by the rules of segregation when he was in training. A man who they tried to use against Paul Robeson to testify against him, and then Jack Robinson said, if I had to do it again, I would not take that invitation. Y'all talking about Colin Kaepernick, they have whitewashed 
your immediate ancestors, Jack Roosevelt Robinson, whose wife is still alive, Rachel Robinson. Apparently they got the funding now to go forward with the Jackie Robinson Museum there in New York. Uh, the sister who's the director, Roland Martin introduced, uh, interviewed her last week and I got a chance to talk to her. Love, she's from Pittsburgh. She's from Pittsburgh where Roberto Clemente would not let them call him Bobby. These are the moments. These are those maroon moments. And she said, as a little girl, we used to ask my daddy, because we love Roberto Clemente. We were like, why he got an O at the end of his name? He got an O at the end of his name because he's a human being. And you're going to put, he ain't going to put him in no damn linguistic zoo. You ain't going to put him in no, 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 no nominal zoo. Not his name. Bobby Roberto. Bobby Roberto. So what do white sports writers in Pittsburgh do? Clemente is sullen. Clemente is. Now, Clemente ain't going to let y'all make his name into the equivalent of putting him in the zoo. Hell no. And guess what? Every time I hear Ms. Robinson, she calls him Jackie. But when she's really getting deep into memory, she says, Jack, I don't call him Jackie. Jack Roosevelt Robinson. Name Jack. Y'all put that IE on in his name like y'all always giving black people pet names. So at any rate, the 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 question then of how do it free us to the arts. And so maybe we'll close with this, because as you say, uh, a week from today, we will be celebrating the fact that you uh, have, have been, the earth has gone around the sun enough times for we have reached a moment where we separate, we, we celebrate the ritual as some black folk call it Earth Day, which is a day that, you know, you know, we have ancestors, your father, your father, ancestors like my father, as long as he, he was alive, my mom still, you know, I call them at the time I came out of my mother's womb and thank her. Why you the one gave birth? I mean, I was there, but you know, I was I was inside, then I was out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So that moment, you know, you celebrate. Thanks, Ma. You know what I'm saying? So so we celebrate that next week. We also know that uh a couple of days after that, we had a birthdays of, and I was thinking about this, Karen. I think maybe we should do one on Hubert Harrison. Oh my god, this man was a towering figure he was born in our birth week we, we're going to do we, we need to do Hubert Harrison. so we got anna hegerman we have se roberson we we have plessy i i'm i'm just keeping a list uh um, yeah no, no no hubert harrison is in fact i was uh there's a two-volume piece on but anyway that's, that's a whole nother thing in fact in narrative you should know where we yeah. are doing these things and also uh we did this week something that we're gonna fast forward um where i think it's available now we did souls of black folk with W.B. Du Bois, where yeah. it, uh, we did a video that is inserted into the book. The book is available in narrative right now. Your homework, because starting in May, we're going to start doing live book club yes. uh, gatherings. Life we need to do one on truth. We need to. We must. Woo! We're doing live book club uh, gatherings that will be exclusively in narrative. So if you yeah. have not signed up for narrative, sign up for narrative. Sign up for narrative, please. A-N-A-R-R-A-T-I-V-E dot com. And uh, so that conversation is in there as well as we we've done a couple of others that will because, you know, we're building this this pyramid one brick at a time. And I'm loving it. I'm loving the feedback. I'm loving to seeing social media. People are saying, wow, I'm learning. Um, you know, the universities are closed. I did do a, a, a tour yesterday for a young sister who is trying to pick uh, in her family. They came from Texas. Very close friends, dear friends of mine. So I said, all right, I'll go out now. I call you know who I called since they 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 they're they're from Nigeria you know she was born here with Carl. her siblings Carl Ajwa 
Of course. Yes. And so first thing she did was, and I, I, I'm going to tell on her anyway. You know, she's sitting up in her car and she takes it. I'm here. I said, OK, so we coming up the hill and we come up on her from the back. She in the car in there bumping. something. And she kind of hood, too. So I'm saying her her people, she's Ghanaian, but she was born in 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 in, in, in New Haven. So she got that other side. And we, sure enough, we call the music all loud. She bumping. I'm saying, see, see, now I told you it was her. They get out, start arguing about Joliff Rice, which I know these Joliff wars between the Ghanaians and the Nigerian, and it was all in fun. But I'm just saying that to say that, and, and, you know, to I wish. And then we ran into some people who uh, Jamaican. This the late the, the mother is from Jamaica. The daughter was born here. They live in North Carolina. I mean, it's beautiful. We got to talking. And I'm saying I'll say this as background as it relates to, to narrative and to this work that we're doing, which I'm so eternally grateful with everyone else as it just continues to expand exponentially. Y'all tell everybody really seriously, because in the conversation with a few people who were around because they they come in with their children. Right. Because nobody's up there. I haven't been up there myself only a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, I'm learning so much. What? I'm like, wait till I tell Karen. I went to see Holly. I'm up. I'm I'm hearing someone at the counter asking Jonathan, the man, the bookstore manager, Sankofa, I need a copy of African Journey, Eslanda Rosen. Hmm. I wonder why. So me and Holly sitting there. Well, I was watching a narrative. Listen, y'all, this is how we get free. How do it free us? How does that free us? Once you have a grasp and get that momentum of memory, you won't get fooled again. As Malcolm said, ah, no more days like those. <laughs> In other words, I see. So I know now how to direct my children not to do. We should have a book club. We're going to have, we need, we know, I'm going to claim that. Where, because you know what uh, Morales does? Because once this was published issue by issue, he sold all this. The white, many of the comic book folk, the heads, you know, the comic book heads, they were nervous. And then they said, we don't want it. Why? Because it's going to diminish Steve Rogers. Y'all making about race, everything. Okay. But then, you know what uh, Morales did? And Robert Morales, like I said, he made transition in 2013. The great science fiction writer, uh, Delaney, uh, Samuel Delaney said that he was shocked because he had asked Morales to be the executor of his estate, uh, and he never dreamed that Morales would precede him in death. Kyle Baker was uh, was born in 65, by the way. But Morales adds an appendix when they put the whole thing together, and he gives you the sources for everything. He said, y'all think I mean, I studied every, he is basically a bibliography for every issue of the comic. He's got Charles Drew. He's got Howard Odom. He's got Du Bois. He's got the Red Summer. He said, I first heard Red Summer at an address given by Paul Robeson Jr. in 1999. He's a New Yorker. He goes through all of the history. He's got the Nazis in here and the experiment, experiment, experimentation. Uh, Lucy DeWittewitz, the uh, War Against the Jews. Telford Taylor, the Anatomy of the Nuremberg Trials. This is not just a comic book. These, these, these cats wrote a history book and then made Captain America the result of the Tuskegee experiment gloss. Anyway, I'm saying all that narrative, narrative. We are retelling. How do it free us? We must re-narrate. We must then get the momentum of memory. So I end with this. As I said, two days after the day that you came uh, through your mother, after that beautiful divine union between mother and father and came onto the planet to shape the way we think about everything and free ourselves, Professor Hunter, two days after that, 
in terms of the days of the month earlier than in either of us in terms of years uh frederick cattell came on the planet in pittsburgh the man we know is august wilson and if y'all want to look at our conversation about august wilson we did it in the context of um uh chad yeah, Bowie. yeah. And my 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 ring, it my was ring, 42 yes 42 thank you oh that was 42 episode 42 as in Jackie Robinson, which is where yeah. we first came to know Chad Bozeman, 42. The number, I'm a Brooklyn boy. I was going to take some getting used to, right? Remember the soundtrack? <laughs> Brooklyn, we go hard, Jay-Z, right? Which is, actually, we talked about that in my hip-hop class last week, because uh, we had class on Jackie on Jackie Robinson Day, and I showed them several things. There was an Oriki from 1949. A bro another brother wrote the song, but it was made popular about Count Basie. Uh, did you see Jackie Robinson hit that ball? Some of y'all did you see Jackie Robinson hit that ball? It was a it was a it was a hit. He hit it, yeah, and that ain't all. He stole home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jackie's real gone. Look up. Did you see Jackie Robinson hit that ball? Black people, this we we be we we, we be making songs to our heroes. They had the Joe Lewis blues. Those words were by Richard Wright, and the music was by Count Basie. And the recording, black eyed peas as cornbread, what makes you so strong? Cornbread said, I come from where Joe Lewis was born. Paul Robeson, the Joe Lewis blues. I mean, so we keep it. So I played the Jackie Robinson, did you see Jack? And then, of course, who remixed it? Nat King Cole's daughter, Natalie. She did it for the uh, Ken Burns baseball series. Did you see Jackie Robinson hit that ball? And then, I said, but then you have earlier iterations. Remember uh, Spike and Joie Lee collaboration, Crooklyn, and there was a soundtrack. And on the soundtrack, they had straight from Crooklyn, better known as Brooklyn. It begins with Robinson Waits. And they got the video, the audio clip, Jackie Robinson playing baseball because Ebbett Field is gone now. It's a housing project. <laughs> it's a department building, right? And then the last one I played, of course, was the trailer for 42 with Chad Bozeman. And then you see Brooklyn, 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 we go hard. I jack, I rob, I run. I am Jackie Robinson. I mean, uh, you know, Jay-Z. So it's like Jackie Robinson is a powerful trope. But to understand Jack Robinson beyond the myth-making, understand Jack Robinson, the man, I don't stand for the flag and I don't sing the anthem. Read his posthumously published autobiography. I never had it made. So. Narratives are important because narratives shape the way we see the world. And so, as I said, two days after, you know, you came onto Earth is the date that August Wilson came onto Earth and the date Hubert Harrison came onto Earth and the date Coretta Scott King was born as well in Marion, Alabama. And, and August Wilson, who, you know, went to the Carnegie Library because he was scared to tell his mom that he wasn't going to school no more. Gave himself an education, read the 30 or 40 books in the Negro uh, section of the library, um, gave a, uh, in fact, 1999, he gave a talk and the name of the talk was Feed Your Mind, which is why this children's book on August Wilson, which I, which I recommend is actually very good. This was the title of the, of the story he gave, uh, of the uh, talk he gave at the Pittsburgh Carnegie Library in 1999. Uh, he gave he called it feed your mind because he said this place fed my mind. A library card was my passport to everything. We're setting up a library card. So mm -hmm. there's no substitute. 
can't watch videos and get it. That's why on the narrative side, everything's annotated. Thank you all. It's narrated, you know, and it's annotated. So the reason I wanted to end with Wilson just with a word about him in the context of what we've been talking about today is and that. Wait, and look, wait, just um, make one one small minor correction. Um, Coretta, yeah. Scott King, August Wilson, and Dr. Gray Carr all born on the 27th. Oh. Oh yeah, no, yeah, I was born on. Yeah, was <laughs> I was. That's right. That's and not right. everything is annotated yet, all, even though all the videos are there because we again are building this one brick at a time. And yeah, I got it. I got to jump in there and help with this annotation. I, I'm, 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 slow on it, but I'm getting there. No, it's all right. It's all right. But you know, the other thing before you go in, I, I, I wanted to just pause on August Wilson because he was an autodidact. Yes, and, and I wanted, you know, for everybody in here who's like, I can't believe I didn't learn this in college or, you know, where was this history when I was in school and yes. how come I didn't have teachers like this? You know, this is your charge. You know, we're all pretty much in this country of miseducation, which yes. we yes. when I just did the miseducation of the Negro. Yes. Oh, yes. 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 But, you know, as as we all realize how we've been indoctrinated and miseducated, we have to do what August Wilson did. So, yeah. and, and if you can give us a little bit of a blueprint on how to become or how to educate yourself, because yes. it's really not easy what he did yes. to sit in that library and read everything. It's um, not. It's not. It's not. In fact, I'm the only reason I'm looking down is because I remember when my father made transition, 2001, and September 2001. Wow. And I went, it was so funny because um, it was the day I talked at Howard, but I was taking the train. You know, I was living in Philly. So when I got word, I got up, got dressed, caught the 42 to, to 30 Street Station, got on that 605 train, went to at all came to campus taught my classes got back on the train that night came back and then i went to nashville because my father never missed a day of work mm. you understand so the idea that i would just call down there and be like miss rose i'm not coming oh hell no my dad what the hell's wrong with you boy i'm good i'm gonna i'm started the journey on the other side what you gonna come in and look in look in the face of where i used to be go to work <laughs> so i went to work came back and then of course set out to nashville and in writing the obituary, my brother and I, my sister, you know, he putting things together. But I, you know, not only did I take that as my responsibility, I took it as the honor as the oldest to draft the obituary. And we've all been in that ritual. You know, I'm my God. I don't know if you did. I, I imagine you probably did you? Yeah, I did. I know I did. you did. No question. Because you're a writer. I mean, that's, I mean, that's one of your deep, 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 you know, skills and talents. So, yeah, you know, and you don't want nobody else to do no, Let me. I'll fix whatever you, but let me, so anyway, one of the ways I described him was an autodidact because, you know, my father, like so many others was from the South and he and three of his brothers, my brother, um, you know, three, uh, three of my uncles were drafted in World War II. They served in the military. My father was a sergeant in the army. Uh, those boys, when they were teenagers, worked in the uh, the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, out of East Tennessee, you know, Cordell Hull, Dam, you know, Tennessee Valley Authority, you know, segregated, but still, Buffalo Valley, Tennessee, East Tennessee. So those of y'all watching Saving Private Ryan, 
and they had to go get Matt Damon because his brother had been killed. They got to make sure one of the fa- yeah, okay. Anyway, <laughs> the point is this: I'm just raising this right quick. One of the one of the words I used to describe him was autodidact because my father never got a chance to finish high school, and so but he never stopped reading. That's the first thing. You got to read. You can watch YouTube videos till your ears fall out your uh, ear, but you got to read. You have to study. You have to be quiet and think. And the key to that is often you have to not only have other people around you to help order those steps. Read this first. That's why we're very selective in narrative. Souls of Black Folk was a deliberate choice. The miseducation of Negro, we made deliberate choices. And so when you see these ebook versions, you'll see they are preceded by conversations Professor Hunter and I have, which aren't nearly as long as the ones, you know, we've been having up to now. I mean, it, it, things will shift now, but but they just, just enough to help because if you're reading by yourself in isolation, you can come up with all kinds of stuff. And we know people who are able to get good stuff out. And we know people who take one word and go off into what the hell and see. So, you know, anyway, so read number one, number two, connect with others. Cause my father was always reading. And so, I mean, you know, I, I started reading newspaper young cause I saw him reading. He come home from work. He sit in the afternoon. He said, read the paper. We talked about that one, one time. And so autodidact self-taught, is true of a lot of people and that self-teaching works best when you connect with others who are teaching themselves and because our people come from a deep intellectual tradition of that work for example i'll give you a very quick example the example uh, the example i'm gonna give is one many people already know the one uh remember when richard pryor when them early albums talk about my daddy used to sit in the barbershop and wait on somebody to make a mistake 19 what he fought 19 what? No, it was 1932. They fought 154 rounds. I got the I got the I got the book in my house. You got your car? Follow me back to my house. In other, in other words, if any of y'all ever been in an argument in a beauty parlor or a barbershop or a street corner that involved a statistic in sports or when an album came out or who had the most, you know that when we want to study something, we take it to the nth degree. The trick for autodidactic work is to then take that same enthusiasm to things that we have been perhaps uh not encouraged to study. My father was like that. A self-taught person, number two, doesn't just pursue one area. So my father would be out there working mad problems. I would look out there and my daddy, you know, he, he would keep stuff in a little, little note. I got, if I, ha- I have one here, legal pad. And, you know, after he made transition, I'm going through papers. We're going through papers. And I'm saying, he's just in here writing. In fact, as I was writing the obituary, I'm going through some papers and he had on a yellow pad and he had put he had written down this question. He said, Which way will we ride the winds of life? Will we choose life or will we ch-? I'm like, so I'm looking for the citation, and then I realized that was his writing. So I took that and that became the framing caption for the obituary. Let this man speak <laughs> to after, let him speak to the future, let his words speak that he wrote down sometime probably sitting out there tired in the middle of the summer or something when we all running around the yard or going off somewhere and he wrote that never thinking it was going to end up here it is put it and then i ended it with the ancient egyptians one of the things they would say about someone who has deceased they would say and i'll paraphrase here you know he or she has come from their town they have descended from their town they have followed the way of their mother and father. 
They have fed the hungry. They have clothed the neck. You know, that's what you want to be able to say at the end of your life. So his words began it and the words of his far ancestors ended it. So, but that reminded me that autodidacts are not just reading. You're also writing, not just speaking. You're writing. Speaking and writing go together. What we're doing now is speaking, but a lot of this speech could be transcribed as writing because it is informed by a, a, a reading life. These are reading lives, Professor Hunter and I live, and many of you all live. When you hear something like my friend Gerald Horn, when you hear him talking, it's almost like he sounds like a book. Why? Because Gerald is constantly workshopping sentence structure and concepts, even as he's talking. So as you can see, in the 1500s, the, this guy said, what is that? And then you read the book and you can hear his voice. You can hear the same kind of thing. The brother I wanted to admit that, that I said, we, we have to do Harrison, who was born on the 27th of April. This is his picture. He was from St. Croix, the Virgin Islands. Uh, this is a treasured possession of mine. This is volume two of World's Great Men of Color, uh, J.A. Rogers. This one actually is autographed by J.A. Rogers. That's why it's treasured. Uh -huh. At any rate, I mean, but see, I mean, you know, when you've been collecting books as long as I have, I don't even know you could build collections like these anymore. But I think on narrative, we should have uh, maybe a mini session, four or five sessions on book collecting. Because a lot of stuff, I mean, it's not that. So autodidacts, the other thing autodidacts will do, they want the book. You don't need to go to a retail place to buy books. You sign up for narrative. We, 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 we loading with books over there. And I've seen several people, including people I've met and, you know, who said, you know, this bookstore, this curated bookstore list on narrative where you can find the black bookstores that people say, I didn't even know we had a black bookstore. Yeah. On there. This is the work that is going into this world that is being made. So important. So that's the other thing. So you are not only reading, you are seeking others who are reading and discussing. That's why these, these communities are so important. You are writing. Scribble something down. Take notes. If you want to write in your book, fine. If you want to take separate notes, fine. But write, write, practice writing, practice writing. And you are building a library. So Hubert Harrison, every year on my birthday, um, at the beginning, because I wasn't born to the evening, so I don't really consider it. I came in the world to the time. I wait to the exact time. That's when I call my mom. Right. So but 1201 a.m. is technically today. I reread J.A. Rogers, Joel Augustus Rogers, the great Jamaican historian and culture keeper, the researcher, the great Joel A. Rogers. I read what he wrote about his man, Hubert Harrison. John Henry Clark used to he was the first one to tell me about Hubert Harrison. And so I went looking for him. Dr. Clark, did you know him? No, I didn't know him. But John Jackson, who was Dr. Clark's man in Harlem from South Carolina and John Jackson, I'm sorry, John Henry Clark was from Alabama, like Willis Huggins, who they both loved, knew and loved. John Jackson knew him. In fact, John Jackson wrote a little pamphlet called Hubert Henry Harrison, the Black Socrates. I never heard of Hubert Henry Harrison. I mean, so then I got World's Great Men of Color. J.A. Rogers was his friend. And J.A. Rogers, talk about autodidact. That's where I'm going. Uh, this is the first page of it. Since then, Hubert Harrison. Here. Since then, my friend Jeffrey Babcock Perry, Jeffrey B. Perry, has written two big telephone-sized book uh, volumes of a two. Uh, seriously, they're huge. Two-volume autobiography. I'm sorry, autobiography. Two-volume biography of Hubert Harrison. His papers are at Columbia University, among other places. Uh, Jeff Perry interviewed uh, the family. Jeff Perry sp has spent his life as a labor organizer. He's not an academic as such, but the books, both Columbia University Press, I mean, high quality, excellent quality. Um, Harrison, 
has a couple of volumes of self, uh, published stuff. Uh, when Africa Wakes, The Negro in the Nation. There's a whole nother story about how me and Charles Bloxon got to know each other because I knew who Hubert Harrison was, thanks to John Clark. And when Bloxon came into his collection looking for a book, he asked the librarian, she didn't know the name. And I said, oh, Hubert Harrison, he only has two. And Bloxon looked at me and said, what you know about Hubert Harrison? And me and him been tight ever since because it was like it was like almost like if you say Hubert Harrison, that used to be like a password. Now people is is chic now. People, oh Hubert Harrison, yeah. But it used to be people didn't know. This is what Jay Rogers says. That in he was born eighteen eighty three. He made transition in nineteen twenty seven. So Clark didn't get to New York till nineteen thirty three. But his man Jackson knew him. Uh, so. Uh, he, he says that individuals of genuine worth and immense potentialities who dedicate their lives to the advancement of their fellow men are permitted to pass unrecognized and unrewarded from the scene, while others inferior to them in ability and altruism re receive acclaim, wealth and distinction is common. Yet it never ceases to shock all but the confirmed cynic. Those with a sense of right and wrong or fitness and incongruity, whether they be wise men or fools, will forever feel that this ought not to be. And then Rogers goes on to say, I'm going to make sure y'all know who this man was. Hubert Harrison worked day jobs, various day jobs. He'd get home at night, eat, oh, take a nap. Let's do this in narrative. Oh, we got to do the narrative. Yeah. Rogers said he was an autodidact. He may have been, this is the tease. He may have been, I won't say this. I won't say first. I say there was no, there was no more brilliant, no more important no more forceful mind in the United States of America during the lifetime of this man than Hubert Henry Harrison. When Marcus Garvey came to New York, Harrison was the one that said, you can come speak at my spot. If y'all don't know Hubert Harrison, you don't know Marcus Garvey. This is, I mean, this is, I mean it's critical. So we, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll pick it up from there. Just like we just did Howard Thurman. Uh, mm. and, and, and more than just reading and more than just talking to people. You have to talk to smart people because of your relationship with smart people. They introduce you to things that you wouldn't normally like. We always tend to seek out folk that make us comfortable. And some people who are insecure will find people who make them feel smart. Right. I, I, I'd rather be around people who are way smarter than me, who know things I don't know. Right. Um, ultimately, that's how you grow and learn. And if you're only hanging out with the same kind of people talking about the same kind of things, then, then how do you grow? And that's part of being an autodidactic person as well as because you want to be better. You want to be smarter. You want to know more things. That's true. Instead of these little tiny circles that some of us, uh, not here, because this this family, uh, what is really amazing about what has been created in just four weeks is something that I imagine is that when you put it out there, they will come. When you, when you put you out there, yeah, I mean, I just, I believe in us. I believe that we want that clean glass of water and we want to be free And the pathway to freedom is not just education, it's knowing who we are and knowing who we are, as you say, to one another, knowing who we are in this world with global mm. citizens and this notion of patriotism. Our patriotism has to be to the soul. How about that? And that's straight. Everybody who they try to make out of was a great American. Y'all better go look at what Dr. King said. My commitment is to life and humanity. That flag. Hey, when it sinks up, great. When it doesn't, that's not going to stop. What you just said is so important because so many people, they try to narrow. This was an uh-uh. So Marjorie Green and Louis Gomert say he going to join. Y'all going to get y'all little clan caucus together. That ain't got nothing to do with life. You either for life or against life. And I'm not talking about terminating pregnancies either. You hypocrites. 
I'm talking about the least of these, those children down there in cages and yeah, Trump, but yeah, Obama too. In other words, <laughs> let's be clear. And so, you know, it's interesting you say it, uh, Professor, and I know we're going to go now, we're going to transition out to have a bit of a conversation with, with folks. We, when we want something, we exhibit that. Like you said, nobody looks, nobody who really wants to play a sport goes to look for people who are play at their level or below. Ain't nobody complain. In fact, I, I, who said this? Wade Noble's on somebody. Many people have said it, but maybe I, I they said you don't see black people asking for affirmative action on the basketball court. In other words, you're not saying, okay, I tried, so give me two points. No, you be out there, ball up, D up. You either gonna play or not play. And you know that better than I do. You have been around people. Now imagine that enthusiasm for reading. I don't play tennis because my the kids in my neighborhood were playing, and because I didn't didn't start with them. They said, we want to get better. We don't want to play with you. Wow. Find another sport. And I, it hurt my feelings, but I get it. You know, it's like, you don't yeah. want to play with someone, but you know. And, like, and if you had decided that was something you were heavily invested in, you I'm could have gone off and, and then I'm back now. I'm going to beat all you right. but, but And that's how it works. So if we can understand that for sports and we absolutely get it for sports. Then it's just the next short step to understand it for reading and writing. It's the same energy. <laughs> it's the same energy. We don't ever question the athletes and say, okay, but that's understand in our culture prior to desegregation, to be a star athlete usually meant you were also a star student. Those two things were seen. I mean, there were exceptions, of course, but when you see them, so Paul Robeson really isn't an outlier in that regard. Of course, you're going to be Phi Beta Kappa. Of course, you're going to be all American football. This is what we do. You understand? <laughs> so. Which reminds me, um, and shout out to Urias and Carl, and especially Urias, because he put a T-shirt in the store. Oh. And, and I, I was like, I want to do, I am my ancestor, and inspired by you. You know how you were like, mm. I'm not my ancestor. We are absolutely our ancestors. Yes, yes. In fact, the great James Small, Professor James Small there in, in New York, Small always says that. He says that not just as a matter of theory, but in fact, you didn't get you didn't birth yourself. In fact, I love that. That's one of the reasons I miss about in-person graduation. I told young people last week, I said, you know, the thing I miss the most is that when I get to see your mother and your father and I didn't start laughing because then I see where your face came from. You didn't make your face. <laughs> we are literally our ancestors. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And that's the beautiful thing about it. Oh, that's a beautiful phrase. James Small says it all the time. We are our ancestors. <laughs> that's oh man, and, see, and, I gotta see, and I gotta see your daddy picture. Can oh, see I y'all look like? like my father? Yeah, uh, <laughs> and my mother. I was just I was talking to her yesterday, and I was like, uh, yeah, I am starting to look more and more like my mother the older I get, and I uh, it's not bad. She's, she's very beautiful. She then she beautiful. Then that's clear. <laughs> no question. Let's bring uh -huh. in my man uh, Ashford from your backyard, from what? Nashville. Ashford. Hey, Ashford. Hey, leaders, how y'all doing this afternoon? Right, you in the Ville? Absolutely, TSU grad. Who you rooting for, baby? Yes, sir. <laughs> I love hey, it. Man, it's an honor to be with you out here today and, and listening and learning to you. Had a, had a question first. It should be a nationally known situation. We're dealing with a TSU from the study that just indicated uh, the state has willfully underfunded our university up to $554 million worth of land grant dollars. And we Probably. want our money. So now, here's the question. Be a national story. 
I know we're gonna be talking about this, and I don't want to go to because I know we will we, we go back and forth, but on that piece, it should be nationally known for a couple of reasons. A lot of schools got shorted, particularly HBCUs, state schools like Tennessee State, Florida AM, Jackson State, let's say. Um, in terms of lawsuits, there have often been cases where this stuff has been settled. The Maryland case that just happened with the four public HBCUs in Maryland and the Maryland system, they got uh, over half a billion dollars. And in Tennessee State's case, I'll end with this. It's a funny Tennessee State story. Harold Love Sr., shout out to uh, Representative Love for, for pushing that. I remember when Harold Love Sr. was a little boy running around the campus of Tennessee State, our alma mater. His sister, Cheryl, was Miss Tennessee State the year I was SGA president. And it's so funny his her because both of them grew up on campus because their mother, Mary Love, was an administrator and a counselor on campus. So Harold Love, that this is the importance of black institutions. This little boy grows up to become a Tennessee State representative and demands that racist legislature go back to the books and see that for every dollar the federal government gave, the state was supposed to match it. And for decades, they held back that money for, for Nashville and gave the money to places like University of Tennessee. And now y'all gonna come up off that money. But I gotta ask you, Ashford, uh, what you think about that Eddie George situation, brother? <laughs> Man, me and my me and my friends excited about it. We're getting ready for homecoming 2021. I can't even imagine. Look, look, look. I'm wondering what that uh John Merrick classic gonna be like in Memphis with Eddie George from Tennessee State on one side and Deion Sanders from Jackson State on uh, hey HWC people, we coming, baby. We coming home, <laughs> baby. We can ready shut down this talk. But anyway, I'm sorry, bro. Go ahead. So what's on your mind, Ashford? I had a question for you. So yes, I also work in our school system. I'm our equity officer for our school district, but then I'm also our uh, citywide co-chair of our My Brother's Keeper Network. So really focusing and mentoring with young black and brown men and speaking to your point around literacy, I'm trying to find a way and would like like hear from you, like what the blueprint is for us to have inside outside partnership to really, we know that our young black boys and brown boys are not getting everything they need intellectually in school. And that's why many of them are not reading. What is the blueprint for us to take something outside and within this network I'm building with the My Brother's Keeper Network and within my fraternity, Phi Beta Sigma. Oh, you see me, yes sir. Model where we can cultivate what you're talking about now on narrative and really hone in on these young boys because our future, like I'm really sold out to making certain our young men and our young women for that matter, get the necessary education they need. And it might not all come from the institutionalized school structures, right. but what are models and curriculums that I can be looking for outside of the school structure to really hone in and build up these young people, young black Thank boys you. particularly. Actually, let me, let me say this right quick, brother. There, of course, at home, I'm sure you know, brother, you know, brother Yusuf, that African images in North Nash, right? Uh, a cable line, absolutely. I go there every weekend. Yeah, a cable line is, man, I remember when he started that store, when we just got in the store. Um, I think the first thing it involves is finding people in the community, particularly those linked to institutions that have the type of institutions that can help that kind of work. So a cat like Yusuf. Our man Yusuf, and for those of you who don't know, this brother owns a bookstore in Nashville, Akubaline Images, which is one of the oldest bookstores we have now, continuous bookstores. Um, and of course, um, and make sure, man, you leave your information in, in, in our conversation that we can be in touch because, you know, my brother is there, Jeff Obafemi Carr. And, you know, they have the Infinity Fellowship there, their institution. They're doing stuff with affordable housing, their institution building. So the first thing I think it is to, to identify partners. 
Um, and you were Metro Nashville Public Schools. You know, I, a lot of my, you know, cousins, you know, NPS, NPS teachers, counselors. And are you from Nashville? I'm originally from Knoxville. Oh, you from Knoxville? Okay. My yep. people from Silver Point, Buffalo Valley. So, you know, we write, you know, you know what that is. So, you went you went through the public schools in Knoxville? I did. Okay. So, where'd you go? Not Austin East. I'm assuming Austin East was the only school we used to know from Knoxville. Where'd you go to school? No, I live five minutes from Austin East, but I got bused to a school called Carter. And Austin East had another killing inside. A student was killed by a police officer in school this Monday. What? So another story that should be national. Yep. Come on, come on, Ashford. Well, see, now that's interesting because then you and I had the same experience. We were bust. So I'm assuming then your 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 community, your neighborhood was black, but the place they sent you wasn't. Absolutely. Right. So this this is this is what happened. I mean, and to tie it to the funding issue, uh in with Tennessee State getting shorted. You know, when I was in when I was in Tennessee State, they were fighting the Geyer lawsuit, Guy versus Alexander, uh, where they wanted Tennessee State to inject a bunch of white students at the HBCU. And in exchange, they wanted to set aside some seats in at University of Tennessee and stuff for black people, this kind of thing. We like, hell no. In fact, that's why I went to law school. But I'm saying I'd say this as it relates to the question you raised and the issues you're raising about how to educate our folk. We were bust. And I expect if your experience was anything like mine, while our community held us down in terms of our culture and commitment and values, we had to fight at some of these white schools that we got bust to because they were the lingering prejudices. At the same time, we also got resources that had been denied those great black schools of the past. My man, I, I don't know if H. Devereaux Brady is still, he may, he's probably retired. He was in theater at Tennessee State. He came out of Johnson City. And, you know, every every city that had a school for black uh, black people, that school was often excellent. I don't know what was the black school in Knoxville before segregation, like the one they all talk about. Austin High. It before it was Austin East. Well, it was exactly. Austin High. That's what I thought. And so integration, they merged the schools. So this 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 ain't no romance. Like remember the Titans in Virginia. Oh, they put the schools together. No, they destroyed the black traditions. And in doing that, then they sent us out. You, me, we the shock troops. We're the first and second generation to go bust. And as my friend Asa here used to say, it was the equivalent of sending us off to war. <laughs> we come home scarred from confrontations, but we're children and our parents had to fight for us. Our communities had to fight. For us. I said, I'd say this. Let's fast forward to where we are, because this is the question you raised. We are now in resegregated schools. I mean, to me, this is really this, this one of her strong points in terms of writing. Nicole Hannah-Jones written a lot about this. I mean, in fact, that's when I first uh, first time I got a chance to talk to her, we met. I said, you know, sis, I use your work on resegregation in schools in my Education in Black America class. She's written a lot. I mean, she did a long arc on Birmingham for New York Times Magazine. I'm not talking about 1619 Project and any of that stuff. I'm talking about this work on segregation. Now, that having been said, the schools now have resegregated. So they're Black. But they don't have the resources. And by resources, I don't just mean money although money is very important. I mean, teachers who are deeply uh, educated in their content areas, because teacher education is not content mastery anymore. It's about classroom management. It's about learning styles. But do you know math? Well, I know math education. Yes, but do you know math? Well, I'm a, I'm a page ahead of the students and they told me that the technique is to get the students to be co-teachers. And what the hell are you talking about? So 
You know what I'm saying? So, so, and you know this, brother, because you're on the inside and you're not only a teacher, you're in administration. So you see. So I think the steps are to now identify those community resources, gather those people, which would include a lot of the teachers. Because what we found out was some of those black teachers who were in those schools, who, as it took me being an adult and becoming an academic to realize the battles they had. Those teachers, Miss Hill, Miss Baines in eighth grade, I can name them, Milton Kennerly in the eighth grade. I'm thinking about all these teachers, um, uh, uh, Miss Hill in, 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 in elementary school. I'm just saying Jeannie Scott in high school, who te- taught civics the year the Atlanta child murderers. She's teaching civics at Hillsborough High School and giving us what we needed. And we didn't even recognize that she's the black woman in the building with Barbara Gray and a few others, Dorothy Baxter, who... and. Here I am, 55-year-old man. I remember them because those black women, Willie Moore, stood in the fire. And so if you have a space, and it could be my brother's keepers formation, but I'm thinking it's going to be something independent that will even inform that. If you have a space for them to convene, and I'll end with this. The answer to the question you asked me is absolutely in the institutional memory of all those veteran black educators in the city of Nashville, who if you made a call, if the first meeting might have 10 people, Zoom. The next meeting might have 30. By the time the word get out, you got an army, brother, and y'all can write a curriculum from soup to nuts and then connect to some of these academics, like my man out at Tennessee State, uh, Leo Leo Rother Williams, who's doing yep. the history of... You, you know Leo Rother, right? So I mean, yeah, my brother, yep. y'all can rewrite the whole thing. And then you walk into a community and say, listen, this is not going to cost you any extra money we have a little Saturday conversation we want you to have about the history of your neighborhood. And we need you, 12-year-old. We need you, 6-year-old. We need you, 19-year-old. We need you to now interview the elders in your family because mm. we need the history, but we you're the only historian that can do it. And I'm telling you, when they get that spark, brother, I can't wait to see what happens. But we need to be in touch because I'm trying to see that go jump off, brother. So awesome. Lee Astrid, thank you um, for that. And I just want to encourage you. You don't have to include the girls. You know, I think we all have, if this is your thing, do your thing. I think all this inclusion, you know, well, we have this thing for women, but we got to include the boys. If you are doing the work for the boys, do the work for the boys. Somebody else is going to pick up the slack over here. And this is what the remembering that we're doing here is all about. And we're actually modeling in Saturday because that was the thing that I always thought you and I, Dr. Carr, were doing is modeling for people how to how to have these conversations with teachers especially for teachers. Yes. This whole system is designed for us to be miseducated. It yes. is up to us to educate our children. It is up to us to use these not Socratic, these African methods. That's right. Conversation, entry points, breadcrumbs to get our kids' imaginations going, which is why we did that whole class on comic books. I needed people to see Dr. Greg Carr learn how to read through his love of comic books and sent them on this journey because there's so many of us that discount all of this stuff, it's all important. And if it works to get the kids in, by any means necessary. I think that is another brother born uh, in this Torian uh, season that we're yeah. So yeah, like God bless you. What you're doing, thank you so much for um, being a soldier out there doing this. Thank yeah, you for the Saturdays. It keeps me, keeps me energized. So I appreciate y'all for starting these back up. Starting appreciate you. Oh no, I appreciate you. Hey brother, I see that's a senior. So you got a junior then. Oh, oh, hold on, hold on. Let me put him back in. Go ahead. Man, he's around here and, and he's an avid reader at eight years old because, you know, at first I did like him. I was like, why are you reading these books on Minecraft? 
but he's gone from a two-pager to now he's reading at eight years old, like almost graphic novels around Minecraft. And his vocabulary is increasing. So I'm like, if it keeps you reading at night, Come let's on. keep reading, man. Ashford. It's crazy, right? That people don't realize it's them comic books, man. The vocabulary is off the chain. <laughs> Karen, you right. I'll say, Ashford, you man, drop your stuff in the chat, man, because we got we gotta stay in touch. Karen, we gotta get him. We gotta go. And let's stop uh, uh, letting people put shackles on our minds about what we can and cannot do and what we should and should not do and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. That's it's right. all appropriate, which is why I'm glad you're breaking the song. You cuss somebody out. You, you know, you're going to use Ebonics and, and all of that, because <laughs> you know, ultimately the goal is to free us. So, you know, I'm grateful to be building with you. Um, narrative is so humbling. It, it makes me cry every time I look to see how people have created this space for themselves in there. And your raise is like, we got to do something on genealogy because there's a group forming in there. And, you know, so it's like, all right, like, who do I need to call? All right. People want to know about the hieroglyphs. All right. Who do I need to call? We're going to put these bricks together. Be patient. You know, Rome wasn't not even Rome wasn't built in a day. The hell with Rome. <laughs> in fact, Rome fell down. There are ruins in Rome and Greece. The, the Egyptian stuff is still there. I'm gonna say the Pyramid of Giza took 20 years to build, and it is still here. It's been thousands of years. That's what we're building here. So oh, that's critical. Thank you. Thank you. And listen, everybody, let us all join and send all our greatest energy to our dear sister who one week from today. We're celebrating the anniversary. She came on this side from the other side. We all came from there. We all going back. But in the little time we have here, we are deeply, deeply grateful that you, your spirit chose to come back over here and spend some time with us because we see the results. Thank you every day, not just for Saturday, but for Monday through Friday and then Saturday and then Sunday. We looking at the stars. We talking about everything. I'm looking. So thank you, Professor Hunter. Love no, you so thank much. You. And three days after that, 27th is you and a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of people. And we all got a bunch of people. And then we got Ella Fitzgerald and Duke Ellington. Wait, when is Ella Fitzgerald's birthday? She's the 26th, I think, 25th. No, I think she's my day. I think she is your day. That's why I say, I think, see, we got to get Ella in here. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and, and I also want to say happy birthday to Donica, who uh, is a soldier in our in our army. Yes, narrative. Uh, so, oh, oh yeah, oh no, happy birthday! Yes, oh yeah, we we giving out April with a bang. We started with Gil Scott Heron, and on the 29th is the great Edward Kennedy Ellington, Duke Ellington, and as you say, Malcolm X on the 19th. By then, we getting a good tourist. Oh my goodness! So, okay, so then we will see each other shortly in May. In May. Love, Love y'all. <laughs> See you.